0: house Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you.
1: Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast.
0: Hallelujah! Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family friendly. Where's the Tylenol?
1: Welcome to week 12 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline.
0: I'm the Grinch. This week we're discussing 2000s. No, I'm not really the Grinch. I'm Mike. You guys know who I am by this point. We're discussing 2000s Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas starring Jim Carrey. It was the first live action feature full length feature film ever made of a Dr. Seuss book. Isn't that crazy?
1: A little bit, yeah, that we made it all the way to 2000 before then. Dr. Seuss has been around for a million years.
0: Very crazy uh, that it took that long. But there's actually a great little story why. Uh, Oh, do tell. So Dr. Seuss, while he was alive, was adamant to never sell uh, his film rights, any film rights for live action adaptation to be made of any of his books. So, yeah, in the 50s or 60s, he had done a live action adaptation and hated how it came out, was really disappointed in it, it. And it kind of hardened his heart like the Grinch made it two sizes too small uh, mm. towards making a uh, live action film adaptations, which, you know, totally fair. And the uh, Geisel family was very protective of his legacy. After Dr. Seuss uh, passes away, his widow, a few years later, I don't know what prompted the change, but she decides that she is going to put the rights to make how the Grinch still Christmas live action uh, film rights up for auction. It, it's a fantastic story. If you if you read into it, I'm, I'm going to spare you all the details. But essentially, all of the movie studios started putting forward their pitches. There were some conditions she put on this. The main one was that whoever was going to play the Grinch had to be of the caliber of uh, Jack Nicholson, Jim Carrey, Robin Williams, or Dustin Hoffman. Like specifically name those <laughs> as the conditions for the auction.
1: Wow. Okay.
0: And you had to be willing to pay five million dollars for the material. You had to hand over four percent of the box office gross, 50 percent of the merchandising revenue and music related material, 70 percent of any income from book tie ins. Uh, Well, it had the actor stipulation that I just said. And it also could only go to a studio that was going to hire director that had earned at least a million dollars on a previous picture. So no untested directors here either.
1: Wow. She really covered her bases, man. Way to go, Audrey.
0: Yeah, right? Uh, so uh, so 20th Century Fox pitches the version. The Farrelly Brothers and John Hughes pitch a version. Universal Pictures holds a pitch, which involves Brian Grazer, who eventually it becomes a producer on this movie through Imagine with his producing partner, Ron Howard. Geisel refuses all of it. Audrey's like, no, 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 no. Grazer Yet Undaunted goes and goes to Ron Howard, his longtime producing partner. They formed Imagine Entertainment in like the mid 80s and says, let's go back and pitch her together. You're going to be the guy because you're going to direct this movie. You're going to be the one that really puts her over the edge. Ron Howard, no desire at all to do How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh, he's getting ready to do a film adaptation of The Seawolf. Uh, he does has no interest in doing this. Grazer pushes him on it. He goes home. He spends some time with the material. He finds that there's a thing with Cindy Lou Who that he really likes in the animated special. And that actually sparks his... Uh, Interest And it's why she ends up being a major character in this movie. So because of the Cindy Lou hook that he decides that he wants to he wants to expand on, that's the thing that they go to Geisel with and she grants them the rights. So it's pretty cool. So it's 1998. uh, They get uh, the green light to go ahead and make the movie and the movie comes out on November 17th, 2000. So, uh, yeah, a a little bit of a wild auction for the old Dr. Seuss rights. But that is also why it was, you know, a half a century between when this book came out and the, the live action version of it being made. So pretty crazy.
1: It is pretty crazy, but good on, like I said, good on his family for keeping the reins tight and keeping true to his story and, you know, wanting to make sure that everything was protected. I imagine that's a very difficult position to be in where you feel like the person's past and it's your responsibility to keep things going on that they would want, that they would be okay with.
0: There's definitely something else going on here, and none of the things I read really got into what it was. But him being so adamant against it, I am curious why she even decided to do it at all. I, I can't believe that it's, uh, uh, it was a monetary concern.
1: I don't know. There was some pretty good money stuff in there that you read off. So I don't know. I mean, I understand that estates and and having things maintained. Like, I, I believe, and I, I'm, I haven't read this, but this is just something I think. Isn't Dr. Seuss's, like, office and stuff? Like, can't you, I say office, but, like, writing studio, can't you, like, tour that kind of stuff? Or you could at f- at one point.
0: Oh, I, I don't know. I don't really know.
1: I believe that that's true. I, I'll, I'll look it up while we're chit-chatting. But but that was the type of thing that I remember. There needs to be money to to keep things up for things like that. And so um, that's, and this is just my memory. So, you know, if I'm not right. y'all. Sure.
0: But- and, and with the stipulations that she puts in place for the auction, she does do a lot to ensure that at the very least, it's not going to be a stink fest. Meaning uh, not that it would be great because obviously this movie has a lot of mixed reviews on it Mm -hmm. uh, and may even have mixed reviews on this podcast. It had marquee talent behind the screen and was guaranteed to have at least a, a major star in front of the camera playing the Grinch. So she really did all she could do to ensure it was going to have the best chance possible to succeed and honor her husband's vision.
1: I mean, everything that they were trying to keep up with him, we know this from things like Elvis, you know, it costs a lot of money to keep up all those little, like, you know, memorabilia type things. and
0: Especially when the person is passed and not making new content.
1: Yeah. And so this is the type of thing that, you know, a lot of people also, they have their same Dr. Seuss book that they had from when they were a kid. So it's not like the type of thing that you buy over and over and over again, necessarily. So it's, it's interesting, but I I can understand why, you know, the estate decided to do something with it.
0: One thing I forgot, and this ended up being must have been part of the auction rights, is Audrey actually retained veto rights over the script too. This this screenplay, which was written by the team of Jeffrey Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman, went through eight different drafts, and Audrey not only had a veto had veto rights over the script, actually exercised it. She actually. Interceded and cut out even more of the adult material and innuendo material than made it into the final film, if you can believe that. But also, you know, blessed the script though to a certain extent because she did have the veto right and did use it in certain parts.
1: I think so. And I mean, Ron Howard, you know, I kind of feel like he's one of those directors that you feel like has the magic touch. If he's involved with your project, it feels like you're destined to be successful. But I have to say, although he is someone who I respect, and I appreciated that he like threw himself into this as a director, I appreciated that for the one day, he dressed as as the Grinch himself and like put on all the makeup and everything. I think that was really cool. And like a good, like, you know, camaraderie kind of thing. Like he doesn't want everyone in the whole movie to have to be all done up like everything and then and, you know, he's over here trying to get something out of them, and he doesn't even understand what they're trying to deal with. I thought that was cool. But at the same time, I don't know. I'm just telling you, this one fell short for me.
0: I Originally, I was going to try really hard not to talk about the 1966 animated special, which is – what really put How the Grinch Stole Christmas on the map. Yes, it's it's a it's a book by Dr. Seuss from 1957, but it's the animated special from 66 that plays every year that people really think of what, you know, Bar- Boris Karloff doing the narration and, and doing the songs and doing the voice of the Grinch, you know, you are a mean one, Mr. Grinch, all of that, right? Is that a staple in your family? Is Dr. Seuss a part of your family's story? And is this one of the, holiday specials that would get played every year in your house growing up and then with your own kids.
1: Dr. Seuss is definitely a staple in my household, uh, partially because my background as a reading teacher, a lot of his books were used as little primers. Um, All the little rhyming words and everything are great. The pictures are so imaginative and creative and really, you know, light kids' eyes up with all the the various stories that are not the same ones that they're hearing all the time. It's not just like a boy and his dog or something like that. Like, these are things that have so much imagination with them, which I I do think leans into our Christmas themes like that. I like to always start off with that. Imagination part, that fantasy portion, and I think that this this has that. For my family, definitely it's the animated version from the 60s that ends up getting played. And I have a lot of um, memories of just, you know, again, it was sort of a little bit like the Charlie Brown one or the Rudolph one where we just are expecting it to come on year after year and there's something that is, it's just a part of our rituals of the holidays. It feels familiar, not unlike Charlie Brown. It may not be like the best animation or the or the you know most perfect everything, but it's catchy and it's familiar and it just, you know, it feels like the right thing to be watching at the holiday time how about you what's your history with the with the grinch
0: i can't say that i probably ever actually read this dr seuss book though no kidding yeah i mean Seuss was like a part of my life growing up i guess really more in school Mm-hmm.
1: It's very common, yeah,
0: yeah, because of the rhyme words and the comprehension, and, and it's whimsy and and the who's and they're you know, the animation, the uh, the drawings were always very they're very palatable to kids. But the sixty six animation was part of that block of Christmas animated specials that was part of my every year. We we talked in the Charlie Brown Christmas how that was a staple, but that's one of the block, right? There was. Charlie Brown Christmas, there's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, there's Frosty the Snowman, and there's How the Grinch Still Christmas. I'll say the How the Grinch Still Christmas, though, was my least favorite. If I missed that one, it was no big deal. You know, if I missed a Charlie Brown Christmas, if if I even if I missed a Rudolph Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, I would have felt that I would have been aware I didn't get my fix that year. Mm. Uh, how the grinch stole christmas eh, it, 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 it never as a kid it never captured my imagination the way the others did i didn't want to talk about it too much in this special because it may or may not come up during our 52 weeks. Oh, uh, at some I did okay. it, 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 it may, it may not. I'm not <laughs> saying either way, but I mean, this is week 12 and that right? means there's still 40 weeks left. So it's possible. It's a classic. So it's very possible. Okay. on the countdown. But also this will be so radically different than the special. I, I mean, there is an hour and 20 minute difference between the two. And so you can imagine there is a lot changed in order to make this a full-length feature film.
1: Absolutely. I, I mean, and there's parts to it I think that I do appreciate, you know, giving some of the backstory of why the Grinch is who he is, I think is a, is, it, is a great add and and helps very much for, I think, kids especially, to understand how you can get that way and how you can kind of change things. If you see someone being bullied or if someone's different than you, I mean, those are all good lessons to learn.
0: I wanted to, to take you to casting first because I have a feeling some of your issues may be with Jim Carrey here. We haven't talked about this.
1: So what do you think of Jim Carrey? Were you happy that he was cast in this role?
0: I had read I read somewhere in getting ready for this that if Jim Carrey had been alive in the 60s, he would have been the model for the Grinch mm. at the time. And I think that is a hundred percent correct. I think Jim Carrey is why I actually like this better than the 66 special. I I actually like what I like what they did with the story better. It sits better as a Christmas movie for me this way than the 66 animated special.
1: Okay. Okay. I, I do think that the casting is good. I think that, you know, Jim Carrey has that silly putty face that just, he's a cartoon. You know, he's a living cartoon and his general demeanor has, you know, that that silliness to it. And also, weirdly, that kind of grouchiness to it mm-hmm. that you could expect these extreme emotions and these these really wild antics and kind of crazy ideas could all really come out of Jim Carrey.
0: I could see him through the makeup doing all these things. I was a devoted fan, a rabid fan of In Living Color during Mm -hmm. its run of the 90s and and specifically of Jim Carrey. I saw probably The Mask and Ace Ventura 1 and 2 and Mm -hmm. Liar, Liar. I saw all these movies multiple times in the movie theater. He was what comedy was to me as a high school age teenager. Yeah, absolutely. This movie is him being that Jim Carrey, which is not a Jim Carrey we get often. Start kind of with maybe the Truman Show. He becomes much more of a serious actor. He begins doing a lot more dramedy kind of roles This could have been Fire Marshal Bill dresses as the Grinch in so many ways.
1: (laughs) I feel that. I, I think that a lot of his personality comes through. I think it was great casting. I could see where someone was leaning into Nicholson. Um, in terms of the grouch factor, I think that part would have been there. Um, Dustin Hoffman has more of the the changed Grinch side of him. And who was your fourth guy? Oh, Robin Williams. I think Robin Williams could have done this justice. I think he would have done great.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think, well, because he and, I mean, if anyone is a fan of, say, Aladdin, the original you know, 94 yeah. Aladdin, 94, 92, 93, 92, the early 90s mm-hmm. Aladdin, where he plays a genie, that's the same kind of energy and the same kind of performance as what Jim Carrey is doing here with the Grinch. Mhm. So the casting works really well for me. I like him. I like the expanded story, though by expanding the story, I feel like they changed the story. I think it is a different story. I think I think the it comes to be a Christmas movie in a whole different way than the 66 Animation does I don't think the Grinch is the villain in this in this movie. He is undeniably the villain in the animated special because the who's are just uh, they're just jubilant. They're jubilant over the time of Christmas in the 66 special. That's what right. he he doesn't like the noise and the celebration, but the who's just really love Christmas in the 66 special. Here, the who's are materialistic and kind of jerks. And really kind of obnoxious. And the mayor is a horrible person or a horrible who. He's, he's the villain of the story. It, it, mm-hmm. So really, I mean, the, the Grinch is a sympathetic character in this movie.
1: I think because you get that backstory, though, because, you know, we know where that's coming from and and everything that he had been through and that he tried to be more loving and, and a different kind of person. And he was basically driven to being an, an outcast. He didn't necessarily choose to leave everyone. He just wasn't included. So, you know by definition he excluded himself
0: but the question of nature versus nurture he wasn't born of the Grinch he mm-hmm. was made into the Grinch but because of the mayor uh well as a kid where he shaves him and stuff I gotta tell you other than the cut thing I mean cutting your face by the way when you shave is a rite of passage as a kid I didn't think he actually looked that bad
1: he was very little he was only like seven or eight like he shouldn't have obviously been obviously he should not have
0: been but I didn't yeah. think I, I felt bad that they mocked him so mercilessly
1: definitely
0: but yeah so I, I and I know you're your your soft heart would would definitely go mm. out to him there but on top of being made made into this bullied into becoming this person who doesn't like christmas he calls the who he calls the who's out in this telling of the story, um, in the same way that Cindy Lou Who does. You know, yes. I, I love that they planted that seed in the beginning when her father's going through the list and adding more and more presents to his pile, and she's like, "Isn't the uh, this is kerbobbled? Isn't this sur, superfluous?" Which is hysterical for a little kid to use the word mm-hmm. superfluous. But even she's like, "This doesn't feel right."
1: Yeah, it was actually really reminiscent of um, Miracle on 34th Street, you know, when we were going in and it was so much about shopping, 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 buying presents and all that stuff. And I, you know, I found like a lot of things in here and I know that the story was written a long time ago, but there was a lot of things, little elements in here, like, um, you know, the Christmas light competition. I mean, that felt like the Snoopy Christmas light competition all over again. You know, it was like the same topics revisited. And we're still obnoxious and galling to those who really wanted to have a pure Christmas. I thought it was fascinating that it was like the same elements were upsetting.
0: This is taking a Dr. Seuss story and really imbuing it with the Charlie Brown Christmas anti-consumerism aspects that we talked about. I have in my notes at the top of the page, the light display contest and the presence, the the obsession that the, the idea that presents... Equal uh, Christmas equal showing affection that that mm-hmm. whole idea that Christmas is nothing more than a, a, a reason to give presents when when the Grinch comes and gives this uh gives this line
1: of course they are that's what it's all about isn't it that's what it's always been about gift 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 gift
0: You want to know what happens to your gifts? They all come to me. In your garbage. You see what I'm saying? In your garbage! I could hang myself with all the bad Christmas neckties I found at the dump. And the avarice. The avarice never ends! I want golf clubs, I want diamonds, I want a pony so I can ride it twice, get bored and sell it to make glue! I mean that could be Charlie Brown as a grown up giving that same exact speech. Absolutely. You know, it, yeah. you know instead of Snoopy, he could be the one standing outside of Martha Huvier's house with her like con- a
1: like contest. I know. And that and that was, you know, something that we talked about in the Charlie Brown one where I was saying that people pay to, you know, put up all the lights the way they were. When she was using the, like, electric light gun, that was, like, exactly what I was talking about. You know, someone basically, it's not about the spirit of anything. It was just, you know, about this, like, efficient way to make the, like, the brightest lights you can make. That's it was just one up, uh,
0: one upmanship. The, uh, yeah. That being said, I thought the lightning Gatling gun was actually pretty cool. But
1: the reason <laughs> it for it, though,
0: is gross, though, because they're not putting up lights as a as a form of celebration which is what they're doing in the 66 special because Mm. or maybe they're not but the because the story is so slim in the 66 special that's the inference made to be all the uh, singing all of the lights the dancing and the celebration that they're doing the 66 version is just because of a pure love of the joy of christmas here it's sinister here it's it's materialistic and gross feeling Mm -hmm. spending time with the who's in this movie other than cindy leaves you feeling icky let me feeling icky i i wanted to get back to the grinch because at least he's he yeah he's a grinch and he's grumpy but at least he was given some like real talk I, i i identified and sympathized with him a lot in this movie And I think that's where where I'm coming out on that. I, I liked it because I agree with him and Cindy. You know, I'm glad that they were able to turn the mirror on this town and, you know, make them see how things really were.
1: Let's get into the aesthetics of this one unless you want to do more casting.
0: Uh, no, I think the only other thing uh, the, of note about casting is that we have Taylor Mumpson. This is her feature film debut uh, mm-hmm. playing Cindy Lou. Who, she's only seven when they when she films this. Or actually, she's only seven when this comes out. She was probably younger when they actually filmed it. That's remarkable because she's a very mature actor. She's using really big words. This is mm-hmm. not a, a Peanuts gang where they're teaching the kids to read on set kind of thing, you know? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I watched a little interview with her and she was funny because she said she actually knew the lines for every single person in the movie. So like, um, you know, she was she started just rattling off all sides of the conversation for different scenes. And I mean, it was really remarkable. So, yeah, and and looks wise, I mean, she nailed Cindy Lou Who.
0: Absolutely nailed it. I mean, I I have in my notes here live action. Who's are creepy looking?
1: Yeah, I'm going to get into the aesthetics with you because I have a big problem with it.
0: Uh, For people who don't know Taylor Mumpson, just to finish her off, it's interesting that she's playing the sweet Cindy Lou Who here at 7. She goes on, for me anyway, I, I know her really as Jenny Humphrey in Gossip Girl. But then she kind of retires from acting and she becomes the uh, the front woman for kind of like a like a punk rock band and Funny, huh? and music becomes her life after that and she kind of shuns acting. I don't think she's really acted since uh, since I think 2011 or 12 thereabouts. She she's like on the cover of F- FHM's like top 100 like hottest with like a gun in a holster like a garter belt like. As a 17-year-old, oh, wow. like just 10 years before she's little Cindy Lou Who. That's a, that's
1: a whiplash there. there. I mean, there are obviously a couple more actors in there that we all recognize, like Christine Baranski. I appreciate that Ron Howard always put some of his family members.
0: A ton of his family members in this movie. There's a ton of Howards. Clint Howard is always in his movies because he mm-hmm. he looks he's so noticeable. But there were a lot of extended Howards, like in small parts.
1: And then, of course, I mean, we recognize the the mayor himself,
0: Jeffrey Tambor. Yep. Unfortunately, a little bit canceled.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Dr. Seuss himself's a little bit canceled right now. So um, that's a hu- that's a hard one.
0: Yes. Dr. Seuss currently is going through a little bit of the cancer culture effect. I don't know. I, I'm not qualified to speak on it. I, I don't know that. This is the right avenue or or platform to get into that. It's certainly something that probably should be looked at, but not on this podcast. That's not what we're not going to going through and and you know deciding whether or not Doctor Sue should be canceled here. That's my feeling anyway.
1: I, I appreciated that you know, and in, in terms of you know, taking responsibility for that. There, it was a different time when he wrote the stories and, you know, his actual estate or the people who, who actually took back certain books that used language that we just don't use anymore. That's all. And so, I mean, it's really not that complicated and it's really not that harsh. It was six books out of the many, many, many books that he wrote. They took them back and we're like, you know what? We actually think this doesn't match the times anymore and the way that we talk and the way that we refer to one another. So, but at this point, I mean, I think that there's majority of his stories still are important and and great ones for kids.
0: And then you have Anthony Hopkins, which is a wild choice doing the narrator in this movie. He's taking the Boris Karloff role and he's giving it like the like the polish. Like you have Christine Baranski, you have Anthony Hopkins. These are like major yeah these are major acting forces, even even in 2000. Christine Branski is well established. Anthony Hopkins is, is an acting legend already by 2000. And you have Jim Carrey, who, you know, he's coming off of, I think, Man on the Moon had come out in 99, you know, which is, again, the start of his serious time. This is the real last wacky role that he's known for but he's still a force in in 2000 this has a lot of fire behind it In behind the screen with grazer and howard and in in front of the camera with with all these people so let's Absolutely. get into the aesthetic what what what's your feeling about this movie and how it looks
1: so the reason why dr seuss is so iconic and such an eye-catching author illustrator and um and now like movie you know for him everything is so whimsical and so unique and so imaginative that it's very difficult to take the things that are in drawings and put them on human beings. And I think that not unlike we had an issue with Polar Express, where you try to take human beings and then animate them, I think that there is an Equally, a big challenge in taking cartoon or drawn figures and trying to make them human. I think that there's something that gets lost in translation that becomes like that weird. Humans don't look like that. You're kind of like distorting people's faces in a way that doesn't look fun for me. It looks weird and gross. I understand that they were trying to, you know, be authentic to the way that they were drawn. But again, you know, we talked a lot about practical effects versus CGI. And I wish that they kind of kept it more simple. Didn't try to force the look as hard as they did. There was no reason for it to be... I don't want to say like authentic looking, like as if these things were born like this, but like it would have been okay if they still had a little bit more of human features because like look at Cindy Lou. She's not completely like, I don't want to use the word deformed, but her face isn't like pulled and stretched the way that like the adults are. And she's the one that kids can probably look at and be most comfortable with where as opposed to, you know, most of the adults are very severe in the way that they look. So I, I did appreciate everything what they were trying to do with the the sets. I, I appreciate how, you know, one of the main tenants of Dr. Seuss is that there's no straight lines. That's something that's been true to his stories all along. And i was really glad that Ron Howard like stuck to that and made sure that they didn't do it. I thought they were very creative with their materials, things like styrofoam um, and trying to create looks that were didn't have that like heavy feel, you know, but kind of still looked kind of light. And uh, there's like a Willy Wonka ish feel to things, you know, um, kind of just like they floated out of nowhere and so I, I all of those things I liked, but I really have an issue with the way that the Who's look. I don't like it.
0: I agree with you that the adult Who's don't look right. I I found them creepy looking, mm-hmm. but I think it's a feat though because it is practical mac- makeup and the amount of extras being used here. I think is a feat of filmmaking that they did this. Now, this is a budget of $123 million, which is a lot of money. It's not as many, it's not as much as, you know, movies are made for now, big block books, big blockbuster movies. But I see every dollar of that on the screen. Now, did they use a lot of computer-generated effects? They did in the landscaping. But this is also giant practical sets, though, that they're working on. At the time of the filming, it was actually the largest set built at Universal's like by, uh, studio uh, in California. It was actually built on the set. It was a big back lot set behind uh, the Bates Motel because you just covered Psycho. I did. Uh, yeah, so the, actually, Jim Carrey would come out in uh, in makeup with a knife and harass people Oof. on the backlot tour at the That's psycho hysterical. at the psycho thing in between filming. These are large practical sets, and I feel that though. I uh, one of the pitches originally was just to have all of these actors just on a green screen, but they built the sets. They built the n- n- no right angles anywhere kind of sets. I appreciate that. And I see that Rick Baker, who was hired to do the makeup here is a legend of kind of creature effect makeup. He, he makes the bizarre kind of come alive and I'm a fan of his work. Uh, and, he was actually nominated for an Oscar for this and actually won. It was They were nominated in four categories, uh, three categories at the Oscars that year. Funny, because it's art direction, costume design and makeup. Uh, those are the three categories that they're nominated for, which, you know, some of your issues <laughs> apply to all three of those things. But Rick Baker and Gail Raul Ryan actually share the Oscar for Best Makeup for the win for this year.
1: Well, let me tell you the difference between two of these things, because we have talked about the idea that, you know, you can have characters that have a less than beautiful look about them that can, that still work. So I'm referencing Nightmare Before Christmas, characters who would technically be disturbing on a, you know, even ugly, whatever the word you want to use, but you can kind of deal with it. There's something about this though, that the combination of still trying to use a human face and then distorting it is different than kind of creating a brand new creature that is a Whoville resident, and I I just don't feel like it worked. Like it's too it's too messy for me, you know. I, I mm-hmm. don't like it, and I and I appreciate that in in you know Nightmare Before Christmas those characters weren't coming from a book that I've known for forty years, you know. And these characters are, and so it's a tall order to then you know bring them into live action and try to make them look like something that. You know, in my mind, they were friendly people and stuff. And these people's faces looked distorted and messed up.
0: I'm thinking to the animated who's from the 66 story. They look odd to me, though. Like, they're not pleasing to me.
1: But that's okay because they're cartoon characters. So that works. But it's when you try to mash that onto a human face... Where you get that weirdness.
0: Yeah, I think it's actually I I think they're creepy looking because they're live action. But I don't know that they're creepy looking because it's a bad attempt at bringing the thing to life.
1: I think they probably executed exactly what they wanted to execute. But I would have I would have canceled it. On the drawing board. So I think that they drew these people and they had the computer animation and they had everything done just right. And then the the magic of the makeup was perfect to what they had made. I just don't like their idea of what they look like. Does that make sense? Uh, no, I that I
0: actually I really appreciate that, and that maybe goes to the larger question that we face sometimes, especially in this day and age of should animated things, should comic book things be adapted into live action takes? And that's because-
1: hard, right? Like I was talking about this with a couple of other people, and they re- they referenced anime and said there's a lot of people who, while anime can be you know uh, a certain caricature of humans in animation, when you try to put that on to humans in real live action stuff, you get this kind of grotesqueness that is what I'm talking about, that you're like, ugh, I don't like it that they kind of like took a human body and morphed it, you know?
0: Now, is your concern the same when it comes to the Grinch, though? Because I think Rick Baker wins the makeup uh, Oscar not so much for the Who's, I think he wins it for the technical feat of the the practical costume and makeup that they put on Jim Carrey as the Grinch. So let's so get into that. there's two
1: elements about the Grinch that I I would have changed i don't think he needs those man boobs i think it's weird and i think it again messes with this idea of like is he an animal because he doesn't wear clothes so when you start kind of messing with like Like um, being anatomically correct, you sort of kind of start messing with this idea of like, is he a what we would kind of consider of the human race, if you will, or whatever, whatever this is versus like a beast of some sort. Right. He's got this strange chest that I do not like. I also super do not like that. He has like a big butt crack. Same thing. I know that that sounds really weird, but they dress him in clothes and he acts like he's a part of. Whoville for his little guy years. And then he's like an animal that they have just the way that they treat his body isn't right. And again, that bothers me. I think that the actual technique of I mean, I've read all the stuff about how they used yak hair and the, the, the beautiful way that they had to go about, you know, actually creating his suit and the two and a half hours. He had to sit there for all of the makeup and how intricate it all was. I think that they did a great job executing again, though, when they when they drew the costume, I would have been like, skip this and skip this, because those are characteristics you have of animals. I don't think we're trying to act like the Grinch is an animal, like he's supposed to be a biped of whatever race this is. We're calling them Hoovil or whatever. He looks different and I get that, but he's not not of that world. Does that make sense?
0: It does. I don't agree with you, but I understand your point. The the who's were done in a way where it, they're they're doing a lot of work on each of the adults and the makeup and, and that they're putting them and and they're applying to them. But you're still very aware there there are humans wearing who prosthetics and, okay. and the makeup. I think the transformation for the Grinch is so complete mm-hmm. that he's not identifiable as a human. If 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 an alien came down to the planet and watched this, they would say why are those weird people with the weird noses calling themselves who's they're obviously humans that look deformed or something or malformed. I think okay. if that same alien looked at the Grinch, they would say, well this is a green creature that is bipedal and speaks English but is not a human. They I I think I think they effectively removed every human characteristic from them because the face makeup and prosthetics apply to him. I think the transformation into the Grinch is so complete between the makeup and the prosthetics and the yak-haired spandex suit costume. I I don't know that he's identifiable as a human other than our brains are aware that there is a human inside of there playing this role.
1: I don't know how to explain it. And so I'm just going to be very clumsy about it, but I'm just going to try to say it. Whenever you take something that's supposed to be equal to you, and he is in my mind as a young person, supposed to be equal to the who's and you take them and then you kind of like degrade them by then having him not wear clothes anymore. And you kind of give him features that are like we would refer to as like haunches and stuff like that. To me, I think that it kind of bothers me that they took a character and kind of tried to like. Take him down a notch and make it be like, well, he's not he's not of our society, if you will. Like, he's more of just this animal that lives in the woods. I don't feel like that's fair to the character. And it all comes through in the costuming.
0: If you adopted a wolf and you raised the wolf as a human and you put the wolf in clothes and 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 put it to school, let's say let's say this wolf could speak English. And then something happens. The wolf is bullied for being different. And the wolf ran off into the wild and shed its clothes.
1: Yeah, but that's you're giving an example of something that's already an animal like there was nothing that established Grinch as, you know, of the animal kingdom.
0: Well, I well, he's he's a creature. I mean, the Who's are creatures. They're not humans. They're Who's. The right? Grinch is a creature not meant to be in Who society. Right? The story says that the wind, a weird wind, blew him into Who Whoville. He wasn't mm-hmm. meant to be delivered by the stork. There. Do you get
1: what I mean? Though, like when okay, so there's certain things you can do about like making him walk on two feet. There's certain things you do that you can like take him down a notch in terms of like intelligence or ability or whatever. And a lot of things that they do and they even do it with human beings, you've seen it done to kind of dehumanize them, is these these same things that they did to the cringe. And I, I just feel like there's something about that that just, I appreciate the technique, and I understand the great work that went into it. I just think that it alters the character, and it alters his relationship with the who's. It takes him down a notch when instead he's a different creature who was still on their level he's not their pet
0: it does so so i don't but i i guess i don't understand too would you have rather them not clothed him and just let him have been a naked grinch as a kid
1: well no i think that as the adult grinch i don't think they should have leaned into these like i'm saying like with having like this big Butt crack And having these like this chest on him that he has, there's something about it that is just it, it's like they drew a dog at some point and they kind of made that like bigger chest. And stuff. I don't know. It's just messy. It's just messy for me. That I that it's that's not the way he's drawn in Doctor Seuss. He doesn't look like that. And so it it's like, why did they take these this creative license with him? Why did they bother doing that? Partially, I think because there's probably something that's comedic about having your butt crack, you know, visible. And so you know, he's kind of a gross character like that. And sure. so I get it that there's something to that. It reminds me very much of ace ventura talking with his butt you know i don't know just for the character itself and i mean it, it matters to me because this is why i lean into not liking it. it is so important the aesthetic of dr seuss that if you mess with that and you take creative license you better not mess it up and i think for me they messed it up they took it to like a disturbing place they altered things they altered relationships between people in a way that was like why did you go there yeah. I mean, I would have rather them keep it a little bit more simple. Just don't even bother making him have that chest and don't just have the hair go all the way down like a Muppet would or something, you know, like just don't do that.
0: Like, like I, you, I actually no- I didn't even notice his. You'll butt notice
1: now. I guarantee you you'll notice now. And it's so weird. It, you know why? It's because I'm looking at it from the point of view. If I was reading this book to little kids, it'd be something little kids would point out.
0: Well, th- that's an excellent point, though. This is not a movie, though. So you could show the 66 movie to, to little kids. And I think it works fine. You can, I'm sure read the Dr. Seuss book to little kids and it's fine. This is a real PG movie. This, I would not show this to a kid under the age of seven or eight. And the sweet spot for this movie are kids eight, nine to like 12 and probably boys. Yeah. But that's Jim Carrey's humor. That's what I mean. That's the Jim Carrey ness of it. Where
1: the butt comes in. See what I'm saying though? But that's an altered character that I think, like, well, you took license with that. And so I'm like, "Uh, I get it. Okay, so fine. So then you made it kind of raunchier for a bathroom humor kind of need. But I don't think that anyone has the right to do that, and especially not to kid characters, little kid characters. These are books that kids learn to to read at four, five years old. When you take a character from a four year old's book and you make them bathroom humor, I'm gonna give you an eyebrow and say, like, did you have to do that? Like, was that the only way you could have made this movie?
0: No, for sure. I, I agree with the humor. That that's the that's the ding I give this movie. I, I the.
1: There were some moments, right, that were pretty
0: adult. The adult innuendo, and not even the innuendo, there's a bunch of it, but just the actual level of adult humor. I, there's this whole movement, though, and I think there was this movement, and it still continues, and I'm sure in 2000 it was going on, of of you, we have to get parents to take their kids to these movies. And Disney really started this, right? I and mean, it, it really, if you – we were talking about Robin Williams. Go watch Aladdin. There's a ton of jokes in Aladdin that are not appropriate for kids, but it's Robin Williams selling it on that level so it sounds funny. So a kid isn't really paying attention to the words. They're paying attention to the patter and the patter is funny to them. The right. adults are paying attention to the words and they're laughing because it's at their level. I think that's what they're doing here. That that's that shtick that he's doing a lot of the times. I do like when movies, and I have I've said, and so I don't want to uh be a hypocrite in this, I like when movies have jokes that work on both levels. Because if I watched this, say with Tom when Tom was 10 or 9, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have The jokes, maybe when like the Grinch goes flying into Martha's bosom, he would have snickered and been like, oh, my God, or, or, you know, that would like made him blush or something like that. But like the adultish jokes would have gone over his head and I would have found them funny. So that doesn't really bother me. I get I I get it's a child's (laughs) classic story, though, a, a book for little the littlest of kids and so maybe that's a little jarring
1: well we'll take some of your beloved characters i mean what if they took sally and gave her cleavage what if they you know like just think for a second if they took one of your characters that you really thought of as innocent and was just a part of a storybook a little guy's storybook and they gave them those extra characteristics to make a joke out of it you would be like you know what i don't I don't think you had to do that. I don't think it's the way it had to go. And I'm, I am all for comedy on multiple levels. I think that's super important. One line that just like really knocked me back was when they were going down the, the hill, that big mountain, and he goes, sun is bright and the powder's bitchin'. What? <laughs> I mean, that was a little like, what are we even doing here? You know, like, I don't understand. And I can't believe that Dr. Seuss wouldn't be rolling over in his grave saying things like that in a story with Dr. Seuss on it.
0: Uh yeah and there was another one uh, when he's I, it made me laugh but at the same time I was like that's not really great for a kids book and and very much against the the Dr Seuss spirit he's uh, he's calling on the the reindeer that actually aren't there and what does he say he's like on crasher on thresher on vomit on Blitzkrieg. The vomit blitzkrieg actually made me laugh out loud, but it's also kind of gross. Like, that, like you don't need that in a Dr. Seuss story.
1: Well, and, and bitching is a whole nother level. I mean, we keep this very family friendly and it's hard for me to say that, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say that on this podcast because we purposely want to keep it family friendly. So, you know, there's just moments like that that I think. I, I think that bathroom humor totally has a place in different movies and I don't care about it It doesn't bother me personally I'm not offended. Just make your own story then pick a different story don't don't even don't pick an established story and then morph the characters to be something that suits your story
0: Are you swayed at all by the idea that this is 2000 and not 1957 and not 1966 It's not even 1990 but the public appetite. Uh, And kids, kids that are 10, being born in 1990 ish, that are going to see this movie in 2000 that they were raised in a world where you could have the Grinch saying bitchin'? Does that hold? Because that's an argument that people would make. And and we talk about it all the time, changing morals, things that were not OK, you know, back then are OK now. And things that were OK way back then are not OK now. We We talk about it all the time in TV shows and in movies that we cover. Is this an example of that?
1: No, I don't think they can. You said it at the very beginning. You were introduced to these characters in school. You were introduced to these characters as a little guy. So no, I don't think you get to do that to these characters. I don't think, I don't know what age you're okay with your kids saying bitch in. It wasn't four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 for me. So, and I am of this age right now that I would still be not okay with my 10 year old saying bitch in. I'd be like, that's not appropriate.
0: I'm pretty sure I had a Bart Simpson t-shirt in when I was 11 or 12 that had bitchin' on it. Bart Simpson saying bitchin'. So I think it was something that I definitely grew up with kids kids saying that. And I wanted to be like Bart Simpson. But that
1: was back how many years? I mean, we're back again. Remember, the pendulum swung a little bit. It actually went back a little more PC, where people actually don't do that. You know, Bart Simpson gets a lot of flack. The Simpsons had to take characters off because, you know, that because it actually went too far. So I don't know. I'm saying in 2000, I don't know if you can bring these characters in and act like this and sexualize characters also i have an issue with that i really think that they could have kept that out of this i think that kids are bombarded with stuff every single day and again you're taking characters like it would be like sexualizing winnie the pooh mike it's the same age that you would have been introduced to those characters take any other group of characters that you would have known back then and sexualize them in any way you would be grossed out, you know, and 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 that's where it comes from.
0: Yeah, no, the the sexualization of the adult who's was a lot for me, and, and those are the things like that I don't like about the movie. Uh, and and there's a lot I don't like about this movie, but there are things that I like about it. And and really for me, it's more I like the story more here than because I think it's a better Christmas story. I, I agree with you on a lot of the adult elements. It was interesting. I was reading an interview and Jim Carrey has said in in recent years, he regrets not standing up against more of the adult humor that was put mm. in there uh, and and him and Ron Howard actually. And I I think grazer too or i I, actually grazer might not have been part of this but i think the quote was that jim jim carrey was talking about how him and ron howard pushed back against the studio who wanted to include even more adult humor and wanted to make it even more risque than it was but it, it was interesting and jim carrey not a person necessarily known for you know apologizing for the things he's done on screen
1: but there was a changing point for him. Whenever he was, like, starting—when he was, like, having a serious relationship with Jenny McCarthy and she had a son, he changed more into a dad figure and was much more conscientious. And this would have been a right timing and it would have been the time when he might have actually put himself in the shoes of parents and or kids and realized, like, hey, Fire Marshal Bill had its place and time and, and all that kind of stuff like that. But when you're taking characters that are for little kids, you have a responsibility to keep a different level of moral ethics.
0: Uh, I think that's I think that's fair. and I, I agree with that too.
1: I know I'm coming off like super school mom and I'm I don't mean to like beat the movie but
0: it's 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 an important part because I think it's a big knock on this.
1: Do you know how many little kids baby nurseries are Dr. Seuss? A lot. Like our dentist has Dr. Seuss everything. And so when you think about knowing these characters from being so little And then in any way sexualizing them, I want to shake the studio's shoulders and be like, just write a different story. You know, don't take characters that are already established for a certain age group and decide to grow them up in a way that no one's begging for that. No one's like, oh, I just I just care about the Grinch's sex life. I just have to know. Like, no one was asking for that story. (laughs) do
0: you think uh, no no not at all not at all and, <laughs> and i think those are major problems and i think they're major missteps uh, this was the studio trying to you know get uh, as many adults and older teens in the and in, in the seats as they're trying to get five six and seven year olds in the seats uh, but you know, like listen this is not a movie i went to see in 2000 i mean i was what 22 yeah me neither uh, as much as i like christmas i did not look good to me i had grown out of my jim carrey phase at 2000 or at least you know uh, the, this Jim Carrey face, I wasn't watching these movies anymore. I don't know. At 12, I would, I would sit down and watch this with Tom. Cause I think he would laugh, you know, at 12. And I mean, clearly I'm not terribly bothered by it. Like I'm bothered by it. Cause I don't think it has a place in a kid's movie. But yeah. not because they're Dr. Seuss characters. I think Christine Baranski is a very attractive woman. So I don't mind you know, like on that level, like I didn't care that she was kind of sexy ish in this, but I don't think that's appropriate for a kid's movie, and that's that's one of the things I don't like and and it's gonna affect my overall Jingle Bell score for the movie.
1: Yeah. in the trivia, top selling movie ticket of two thousand, fifty million sold. I mean, obviously other people
0: This movie was a massive hit. This movie makes $363 million.
1: But let me just tell you, that wasn't because this was the first time moviegoers saw The Grinch. This was because Dr. Doctor Seuss has a following, and Dr. Seuss has already like a place in pop culture. So the idea that people just came in off the street and was like, what's a Grinch? Like, sort of you're kind of talking about. I don't think that's a thing. I think that most people do know something about Dr. Seuss and do know something about what they would expect. And maybe they bought the ticket, but I guess it doesn't say... And when they came out, they were super happy with what they saw, <laughs> you know, like Dr. Seuss might have brought them in. But I would be curious to see how many people really were like, that was amazing. And I'm super glad that that's the way they handled all those characters.
0: No, for sure. I mean, and and this movie has not aged well. If it had aged well, you wouldn't have had the 2018 animated you know, they went back to an animated version of mm. the story called The Grinch. I think Benedict Cumberbatch plays The Grinch in that or voices The Grinch in that story. You know, I, I think if this had become the classic that the 66 story had become, it would be more treasured. This is not, as far as I know, a staple on, on, on the cable channels every single year.
1: Well, and just to be clear, even though it made such good money, and again, I think Dr. Seuss gets the behinds in the seats, it has a 49% Rotten Tomato score. Forty nine percent for a beloved story. Sure.
0: But it has an A minus score, though, on CinemaScore. So audiences polled by CinemaScore gave the film an average rating of A minus. This is not a movie <laughs> for like critics like and this is predictably like people like Roger Ebert and 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 the other critics didn't like it. They all praised Jim Carrey's performance. That was a recurring a recurring theme.
1: And Cindy Who's as well. I, I I thought that she did a fantastic job, and I thought that they they showed the uh, transformation of the Grinch. I think was was longer and more way more drawn out than this. Obviously, the storybook or the the animation. But you know, he he, you could see the steps to his evolution and the little by little. It actually weirdly reminded me a lot of Bad Santa. Because you had this little girl and you had this sort of like no one was listening to her. No one was paying attention to her kind of feeling. And everything that she said to the Grinch, every time she showed up out of nowhere and was like a help, just like the little boy, you know, helping him in the fight. You know, she would show up and be like, well, no one should be alone on Christmas. Like her little heart. Really changed everything for him, and and it was weird to me to see the comparison to be like, whoa, this is very bad, Santa. Like it has a lot of the same elements.
0: Oh, I, I, I don't see that at all only in the briefest sketches this uh, this this story the the problems with christmas that cindy puts forward and that the grinch is also like citing it. and again just just the movie on its face i just
1: mean what changes him i don't mean like all the deets on that part or what was the initial problem but how, how and why he changes is because of one kiddo
0: that's true but i don't think he's as i don't think he is as like in bad santa uh the willy character is a disgusting human being that is semi-reformed by a child who who is stilted the grinch was never so far gone even even when she first comes up to tell him about being elected the Cheermeister, He's playful, she's laughing, she's not scared of him right. versus versus the kid, you know, Thurman and Batsana that is blank.
1: You know, I obviously there's levels of extreme. I'm just saying I was surprised. I was surprised. Think about that for one second. That you can even find one element of similarity between these the two movies. Is like a what? You know, like I didn't expect to ever see any similarities with Bad Santa. So I was surprised. I was like, wow, there's actually the same transformation feelings. There was a lot going on here that I saw in a way weirder movie.
0: Is this a Christmas movie, though? Is is this a Christmas movie? Is this telling a good Christmas movie story?
1: Well, you go first. Hit me with it. I I
0: think it is. I think it's a good Christmas movie. I think it's telling a good Christmas story about on top of the the bullying story and and seeing how the grinch you know the cruelty of these people treating someone who's different from them and mocking that you know causing them to you know, hate this beloved holiday. Where else they were kind of in? You mean he was home making a craft? I mean, there, there's your bad Santa, right? He's making a bloody pickle for Martha. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I actually I read in the trivia the jewels that she's wearing in her hair as an adult are from the little sculpture that he made for her as a kid.
1: I believe it. I totally believe it. How sweet.
0: You know, I I like that they're picking up on the Charlie Brown anti uh, you know commercialism that that Christmas needs to be about more than just the presents. Um, I think. I think that's something Cindy points out explicitly. I think it's something that the Grinch is citing as one of his issues with how they celebrate. And I don't know if he's being completely sincere it, you know, when he's giving this speech about all of your presents that you guys are obsessed with giving each other, they all wind up in my garbage dump, you know. Yeah. But that's a powerful statement, though. How many people's presents – I don't want to get into the gift card rant again – but how many right. people's presents <laughs> get returned? I mean, there was a whole it was a whole storyline in Friends that Rachel returns every present she's given for store credit. That's a real thing, especially in this country. How many presents wind up in the garbage or wind up back at the store where they came from? Because people aren't giving thoughtfulness they're just giving materialism I like that the movie is picking up on that and making these people feel bad for it because I think that's an issue the the lighthouse contest just for the sake of having a contest not because lights are joyful and and bringing you joy I like all of that that works for me as a Christmas story I like the redemption arc uh, of the people I like that mr Lou is is changed he finally listens to his daughter and acknowledges she's been trying to tell me and I hadn't been listening until just now now You can't. The Grinch can't hurt Christmas. You, Mayor, can't hurt Christmas.
1: That was actually like my favorite line of the whole thing. That idea that you can't hurt Christmas, that you can't. It, it isn't a thing. And it, that just makes me like that alone is like if anything out of our entire 52 weeks, we end up realizing that Christmas isn't a thing to be bought or sold. And it's not something you can steal or hurt.
0: Uh, I would say it, it falls under this. And he puzzled. And puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before.
1: Maybe Christmas, he thought. Doesn't
0: come from a store. Maybe Christmas... Perhaps
1: Means a little bit more.
0: That's at the end of the day for me, that is a big theme that works.
1: So you say, is a Christmas
0: movie. Is a Christmas movie, is okay. telling a good story, has a lot of problems.
1: Well, we'll get into the in the jingle bell rating. All right. So uh, I am going to say, yes, it is a Christmas movie. I think that it is a, a classic story. Um, you know, I think that, I mean, it's so universal that, you know, we use the word Grinch to describe anyone who isn't in the spirit of something. It doesn't even have to be the spirit of Christmas. You could be like, you're being a Grinch at like a birthday party or anything else synonymous with being grouchy and grumpy. That alone, how universal it is and how much people understand and know this story really helps it become sort of like that it gives it the tradition part of it and and then i mean of course it wouldn't be this story without being set at christmas time and and i liked some of the little songs i mean i do think that whenever we talk about christmas stories it always helps for me when there is a little catchy song here or there and you know you're a mean one mr grinch come on now come on now i love those ones
0: uh, one thing we didn't talk about. Uh, so for me, you know, Rick Baker being the makeup guy here was a big deal, but the the orchestral score actually. There's the yeah. big song in here, the Christmas. Why can't I find you? Which yes. becomes where are you Christmas as sung by Faith Hill which became the like commercial song from the movie uh, I actually didn't like I actually did I thought I thought the city character
1: so, similar to that um Christmas time <laughs> that's so it's funny so I found similar. it so
0: grating and annoying the, the song <laughs> I think the words were lame I think that the tone the intonation it's funny that she becomes an, an actually pretty good singer I don't think she's doing a good vocal performance here I listened to a little bit of the actual commercial song which mariah carey actually wrote and was she wrote and recorded but because of her ongoing divorce and messy split from tommy mottola at sony was was legally prohibited from releasing the song so it was then re-recorded by faith hill and that's the version that you hear in the movie but mariah carey is one of the co-writers of that song Yeah, I I don't like that. But the orchestral music in this movie, this is a James Horner soundtrack. I love James Horner. I think he's fantastic. And I think that's a big part of the uh, the big part of the things that work in this movie. Unlike you, I think the aesthetic, I think the 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 sets are all kind of, like, really popping and really put me in a Dr. Seuss mood. Uh, but I think the music is very Christmassy. Uh, yeah. James Horner, best known for doing Titanic. He did Avatar. He did Aliens. He's, he did, I think, uh, two Star Trek movies, Khan and The Search for Spock. I mean, he's... Not the most well known of the modern music uh, film composers, but he's he's one of the big like heavyweights. So big deal that they have. He's a frequent contributor uh, collaborator with Ron Howard. I think he's done a bunch of Ron Howard's movies. And but yeah, having him here, I think adds a lot of weight to it. So I'm glad I'm glad you brought up music.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that 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 has over the weeks and I I wouldn't have said this on week one. I think that is a big contributing factor to the feel and the spirit of a Christmas movie. And I think that this one absolutely has it in it. So, you know, I'm okay with calling this a Christmas movie for sure.
0: While we think of our jingle ratings, I'm going to play you a clip from next week's movie. So uh, so keep an ear out. Let me know if you know what this movie is.
1: You can't know to a girl like me. Mm. Handsome, dazed, and to die for.
0: A mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. Mm, But a kiss can be even deadlier if you mean it.
1: Am I listening to Making Out? Man who killed me this week, but I've got seven lives left.
0: I try to save you from mm, Ram. Seems like every woman you try to save ends up dead. <laughs> or deeply resentful. Maybe you should retire.
1: Oh gosh, I have no idea in the world because she has however many extra lives, I'm assuming that's Catwoman, but good God, I have no idea what one that is.
0: It is 1992's Batman Returns. This is the sequel, the Tim Burton sequel to the uh, Batman from 1989. The Jack Nicholson plays the Joker version. Uh, This is the 92 sequel that Tim Burton does. It's one of the things that keeps him from directing The Nightmare Before Christmas. is because he's doing, he's finishing a production on Batman Returns. This is the famous poster of the bat, the cat, and the penguin. Where Michael Keaton, Michael Keaton on top of uh, Michelle Pfeiffer on top of Danny DeVito is the penguin.
1: yeah okay all right well crazy i don't know what i'm gonna think about that one i don't think i've ever looked at it through this lens so that'll be interesting hey mike let's do a little bit of fast facts before we hit our jingle bell ratings in the final scene cindy lou who passes max a plate of green eggs and ham as a little nod to the dr seuss book
0: A a wonderful nod to the Dr. Seuss book, and I actually went back and I looked in the cartoon. She hands him food, but it's just a little bit of the roast beast. It's not green eggs and ham. So I thought that was a nice addition that they did here uh, uh, for the Dr. Seuss head nod. The first time that Jim Carrey tried on his Grinch makeup, he was so uncomfortable and so angry at it, he kicked a hole in the wall and told Ron Howard he couldn't play the role. He, has, he compared the experience to being buried alive, so much so they had to bring in a former CIA operative to train him in uh, uh, resistance torture techniques.
1: Wow. Wow. That's that's sad. And wow for him to have such dedication to do the role. Jim Carrey's yellow contact lenses were so uncomfortable that he wasn't able to wear them at times during filming. So some of the shots of his eyes were colored in post-production.
0: This won't be a surprise to anyone, but many of the Grinch's lines were ad-libbed by Jim Carrey, other than the uh, faithful Dr. Seuss readings that they pulled from right from the book.
1: No movie other than this has featured so many characters in heavy makeup and costuming since The Wizard of Oz in 1939. That's a long time.
0: Uh, apparent, approximately 600 visual effects were used in this movie, totaling 43 minutes of screen time.
1: As of filming, the movie had the largest set at Universal.
0: This is the second – this is a personal podcast, fast fact. This is the second week in a row uh, of us covering a movie where Frank Welker was credited as the voice of the dog in the movie. He is credited as providing the voices for Zero in The Nightmare Before Christmas, and he provides the dog noises for Max in this film.
1: Oh, my gosh, that's funny. You know what? I needed to add a little like um, what do I want to say editor's note from um, our Nightmare Before Christmas. I was referencing this movie and I said that the Grinch's dog's name was Sam and it was not Sam. It's just that I have had a Sam dog and a Max dog. And in my brain, I was thinking the same name as your dog. And I said, Sam and not Max. So apologies all around.
0: Max actually was actually played by a female dog named Kelly in this movie. Uh, People may have noticed uh, at the end, the first title card uh, has a dedication to a Jean Spiegel Howard, and it lists her as being the one who loves Christmas the most. Uh, Jean Spiegel Howard was Clinton Ron Howard's mother who had passed away Uh, earlier. I think she had passed away in September of that year.
1: Approximately 600 visual effects were used in this movie, totaling 43 minutes of screen time.
0: I literally just said that like two facts ago.
1: <gasps> you did? I did. Where was my brain? I don't know. How did I not hear you? I'm sorry. Uh, how about this? During shooting, more than 1,000 man hours were used to apply the extensive makeup on the actors and actresses. Hey, Mike. Mount Crumpet is 3,000 feet high. That's wild. That's a very tall mountain. I Shall like. Leave? I
0: love that the dumpster goes upwards when he jumps in it, like the pipe, the to the dump. <laughs> but like, <laughs> yeah. and they they go to like the animated map of it of him traveling. <laughs> I think it's really really funny. Yes. Oh, there's a, this, this was, this one made me laugh. And this will be my last one. Um, when the Grinch is hating the Who's alphabetically using the, uh, Whoville the telephone directory, which was very funny, uh, <laughs> yes. there's a telescope behind him and it's got a fake green leg with lace on it. That leg is an homage to the Fragile leg from A Christmas Story.
1: That's really funny. Right? I love that. I, I that love funny. a little like nod to another Christmas movie within a Christmas movie. For sure. For sure. Always Props makes me smile. Props to that. Yeah. Right? Yes. Love, love it. Love that a lot. All right. Jingle bell rating time. Blah, 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 you blah, go
0: first because I have had to go first the last two weeks.
1: Okay. I give this jingle bell rating of a seven. And that is because while it does have the Christmas elements to it, I really dislike how they have manipulated the characters from very young children's books into these characters that I thought were visually unattractive. And despite the amount of effort, doesn't mean that it turned out well or was successful. So I appreciate all of the efforts, but I did not actually like how it looked. And Dr. Seuss stories have to be about the visuals. Um, I give it as high as a seven because I do appreciate that they offered a little backstory for the Grinch and they tried to kind of give him a little bit more motivation. So it doesn't, it wasn't just like he's a mean person. He actually had a reason behind it. And so for that, I give it a seven.
0: All right. I'm actually making adjustment here. I'm making adjustment. I'm adjusting down Bad Santa from a (gasps) 7.5 to a 7. Ooh. And I'm giving How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Jim Carrey's 2000 version, a 7.5. Okay. I'm locking in that rating. I don't like all the adult humor and innuendo. I don't like that the Who's are so gendered uh, to be sexualized. I think the Who's look creepy. But I think they're a faithful adaptation of the story, what I do like. I like the expanded story giving us uh, the Grinches backstory making the Grinch a sympathetic figure not making the Grinch a villain a full-on villain I mean he saves Max makes him but he saves Cindy at the very start of the movie uh you know this is not a this is not a forsaken Grinch like you're gonna get in the 66 animated version the mayor is the is the villain the who's are the ones really at fault in this movie. I like that turning it on its head. Through that, I like the Christmas message that they're making explicit in here, that Christmas should be about something a little bit more. That it shouldn't be about presents from a store. It shouldn't be about hanging Christmas lights just for the sake of hanging Christmas lights to to one-up your neighbors. Um, I like all that. I like Jim Carrey's music. Uh, I like Jim Carrey's costume. I like how it looks. I think he's fantastic in a role I think this is a role that he is truly made to play. This is not a movie that I would having seen it. I don't think I would want to take a young nephew or niece to it if they were younger than, say, eight. But I would not without I would without hesitation show this to an eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 year old. And I think they would love it. I think they would have a really good time with it. I also really like the music. So uh, there's a lot of stuff going on here that I really do like. But there are some significant issues in here. Uh, Dr. Seuss and you know I agree with you shouldn't be a PG movie. You know you should be able to do it uh, on a on a gentler scale. While still being funny, I think Jim Carrey could have done a lot of the shtick he did here and in a toned-down way. um But really, for me, the problems were the sexualization aspects of it, not the fart jokes. The fart jokes made me laugh. The adult innuendo, the hubba hubba, the I want to, you know, whatever. I don't want to get worse because I don't want to be too much. But yeah, the <laughs> stuff that they the 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 sexual aspects of the movie, I did not like, and there's no place for it, and it was unneeded. It, it the the story would have been just the same. And I think the Christmas message would have been just the same without all of that. So going with a 7.5.
1: Hey, Mike, one more fast fact. Did you know that approximately 600 visual effects were used in this movie, totaling 43 minutes of screen time?
0: That is brand new information.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you hadn't heard it at all.
0: Thank you so much for listening to 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could, please leave us a five star rating so we don't have to break into your house at night and steal all of your Christmas ornaments.